0: It's a pleasure to be with you this evening and to have an opportunity to share with you some ideas and some thoughts about the concepts of intimacy and the concepts of relationships. And that's what I'm going to be talking with you about tonight, and that's what we're going to be looking at. When I was asked to do this, I was asked if I would address an issue with you that answers a question that just a couple of us may be concerned about. Uh, That question is, what is normal in a relationship? Have any of you ever asked yourself that question? (laughs) What is normal? (laughs) Now, now, in an attempt to answer that question, I, I did some looking into as many sources as I could find and I was trying to answer the question number one how many people in the United States come from basically functional families okay now a functional family you know what is a functional family a functional family is a family of origin that basically equips a child with the emotional, intellectual, and relationship skills to deal with life as an adolescent and as an adult. And let's repeat that definition. A functional family is a family unit, a home, where a child learns the skills that are necessary to operate emotionally. In other words, I learn how to recognize what I feel, put labels on my feelings, and then tell other people what I feel. And Conversely, I have the capacity to care about what others feel, to listen to their feelings and respond. That's criteria number one. Criterion number two is a, a functional family prepares a child to cope intellectually with the world. It teaches them how to think clearly and accurately without major denial. It teaches them how to see reality more or less for what it is. And then the third aspect of a healthy family is it teaches children, a functional family will teach children how to relate in a productive manner with other human beings in relationships. Now what percentage of the, of the adults living today come from healthy families? The best estimate I can give you is somewhere around 20 to 30% of the adults in the United States today have come from a functional family unit. If you happen to come from a dysfunctional family and you meet one of these people, it is a really strange experience. <laughs> Now, I had this experience in a support group that I was involved in through a church that I participated in for a while, and uh, we decided we would introduce ourselves to each other one night by telling the stories of our childhood, so I went first. (laughs) Then everyone else came after me, and I sat there and I thought, For the people who came from functional families, I I believe they were lying. I absolutely believe they were lying. I did not believe that they really got the kind of loving and caring that they received, that they were actually able to identify and talk about feelings, think clearly about reality, express opinions, and they actually learned how to cope with other people. Now, as a result of growing up in a dysfunctional family, we lose touch with the concept of what is a healthy relationship. Now let me just pose one thing to you. If 20 to 30% of the adults in the United States today come from a functional family, 70 to 80% of the adults come from a dysfunctional family. Now people who come from functional families have learned unconsciously how to relate in a productive, healthy, and intimate manner with others. you come from a dysfunctional family, you have learned unconsciously and habitually to relate with others in a destructive style of intimacy. Now, if eighty percent, give or take ten on either side, come from a dysfunctional family, What is normal? It is normal in the United States today to be dysfunctional in your relationship. (laughs) And now I sit down. (laughs) So, what we are... And if you don't believe this, I encourage you to watch television and take a look at the role models that are being held up to us and ask yourself when was the last successful soap opera that you saw that role modeled healthy, intimate relationships?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. There are very few and far between. So, if, Now, I'm suggesting that tonight we're going to ask a different question rather than what is normal because I don't know about you, I don't want to become the norm of this society in terms of relating to others. I want to become abnormal. So I suggest we ask a different question. What is healthy in a relationship? What does it mean to have a healthy intimate, a healthy interpersonal relationship? And that's the question I'd like to address with you tonight. And I'd like to explore and invite you to think with me Now, before we go into the actual examination of this issue, what is healthy, I'd like you to do something for just a moment with me. Healthy relationships are based upon the ability to to do two basic things. And I'm going to ask you to do one of them right now. I'm just going to ask you to sit back for a moment. Settle yourself into your chair. Take a very deep breath. And notice what's going on inside the center part of your body, from the pit of your stomach on up to your throat. And take another deep breath and just notice that. And see if you can put a word label on that. Okay? And then I'm going to ask you to take another breath and notice if you've got a conversation going on in your head. Okay? And then I want you to just take another deep breath and notice if your mind is, has a tendency to go away to some place special. Okay. And now, come back out of yourself, and I want you to turn to somebody to just to the side of yourself, and I want you to look the person next to you right in the eye and say hello and share with them a word or a phrase about what that experience was like for you to look inside of yourself. Take this moment to do that. Now, what we just did in a little mini-experiment is go through the process skills that are necessary for having a relationship. A relationship is simply the process of relating to another human being. And what does it mean to relate to? It means you do two things. You look within yourself to identify your inner experiences what you are thinking, what you are feeling, what you are imagining, either through memory or through projecting into the future. Then you pull out of yourself and you connect with another human being and you tell them the nature of that inner experience. Then you shut up and listen to what the other person says to you in response. Those are the three basic skills of relationships. Look within and know what your experience is, pull yourself out of yourself, tell that to another human being, shut up, stay connected and attentive to the other person as they tell you what is then going on inside of them. Then you listen to that, then you get back inside of yourself again and notice if your inner experience has changed, Pull yourself out, tell them how it's different now, what you're thinking differently, how you're feeling differently, what you're imagining differently, and then attend to what they are saying back. Simple, isn't it? (laughs) Only if you've learned as a child and have unconsciously habituated by doing over and over again that process. Those three processes are what healthy, functional families teach children to do from the day they are born through role modeling and practice and correction over and over again so it becomes an unconscious habituated process it is a process that people from dysfunctional families never learn and as a result sometimes as an adult they have to start the painful process of taking each one of those behaviors apart relearning them and doing them over and over and over again repeatedly until they get in the habit of doing it. And initially it's painful, but for those of you who have begun this process, it gets easier over time. Now, what I'm going to talk about is the process of building a healthy relationship by talking about, first of all, what levels do relationships operate under. People from dysfunctional families often fail to recognize that Healthy relationships can operate on a number of different levels, and we're going to explore what those are and the types of problems that occur when one person's operating at one level of relationship while another person is operating at a different level of relationship and the expectations don't quite match. <laughs> Have any of you experienced that? <laughs> All of a sudden, you're not quite getting from your partner what you think you should be getting. But your partner is giving exactly what they choose to give. And it tends to bend us out of shape a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. The second thing we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the nature of dysfunctional or addictive relationships. The types of relationships that Alcoholics tend to get into once they get sober. Drug-dependent people tend to get into once they get sober. Adult children tend to get into once they start growing up. And we're going to talk about what this is and try and examine it to see if perhaps we relate to this just a little bit. And then we're going to take a look at these characteristics and say, what are the healthy counterparts? If you are involved in a dysfunctional an addictive style of relating to other human beings, how do you, can we set up a vision or a goal of what is healthy that we can start growing into? How can we set our goals for how we want to change our style and our method of relating? And then finally, I'm going to discuss some general steps for how you can begin the process of growing out of an addictive relationship style into a healthy relationship style. Let's begin at the beginning. And this is the beginning because many times people who come from dysfunctional families learn very early on they have two options. Intense, painful involvement or isolation. There are two levels of relationship, abandonment or intense pain. That's it. That's it. And so I can choose. I can be totally alone till I hurt so bad I can't stand it, or I can be dysfunctionally involved with a human being intensely until it hurts so bad I can't stand it. So life becomes a vacillation between painful loneliness and painful involvement. Anyone identifying with anyone? (laughs) We fail to recognize that relationships operate on a continuum of levels. The first level is superficial involvement. Did any of you say hello to the nice people who are serving you dinner tonight? Have you passed each other in the hallways and said, Hi, how are you, shook hands, maybe even hugged each other. Never see that person again in the whole, maybe not even in the conference, but you're nice and you're pleasant and you're superficial. There's a housekeeper at work, there's a secretary at work. There's You know, somebody, it's just very superficial, very pleasant. Superficial involvement occurs in relationships where people interact in a casual manner and have little investment in and absolutely no commitments to one another. Okay? Casual friends and short-term associates fall into this category. Have you ever met somebody you're kind of casually involved? Um, uh, you go out to dinner maybe or a group of you after work say, well, let's, let's go down the street or you take a raft trip down a river or you, you go on a skiing trip and you see people for a weekend. These are casual relationships. Okay, Now, at times these casual relationships may be sexual and at other times they may be non-sexual. Okay? Now, so sexuality no longer is an indicator of intimacy in our culture and this is an important thing to recognize. Simply because someone wants to be sexual with you whether they be male or female does not necessarily mean they want to be intimate with you. They may only seek a casual superficial involvement sexually. And that pretty much morally is becoming acceptable as okay you know the cultural revolution has come and gone and sexual practices have changed now what if you desire more than this oh by the way most people from dysfunctional families feel guilty when they get involved in superficial relationships I should be so much more to these people and you find them rescuing housekeepers from their personal problems, and you find them, you know, they, the tendency to escalate these real... Well, here's this guy I see on the elevator every day. He looks so depressed. i just got to take him home with me tonight and care for him. Okay? And when, when they find that there are all of these people around, they, they start numbing off. Because the expectation is, if I'm going to get involved with somebody, it's got to be very intense and very seriously committed. I have to shrink my social world to nearly nothing because it's not okay to have superficial involvement. Normal people have superficial involvement, and it's okay. And if a superficial friend is hurting real bad, that's fine, but it's not my problem. Okay? Second level up is companionship. A companion is a personal relationship where two persons associate for the purpose of sharing common activities. A companion is somebody, for example, I have a friend who I go and see Charles Bronson movies with. (laughs) Sick, yes. Fun, lovely. Really love it. Okay. Now, that is a shared activity. Now, what happens is I pick up the phone, I call him, I say, Hey, Joe, let's go see the new Charles Bronson flick. And may, he may say, I really don't want to do that. Why don't we go and do something else? And I say, I really want to see the movie, thank you very much. And I hang up the phone, and I call somebody else and say, Hey, let's go see this movie. The activity, by the, in companionship, the activity is more important than the person. Let me repeat this. The nature of companionship is that the shared activity is more important than the person, and the person becomes interchangeable. And that's okay. What's that do to your (laughs) gut? That's okay. It's okay for me to want to go to a movie and go out and tell people and say, "Who wants to see the movie?" And if somebody says, "Gee, hmm, I really want to go out and shop." And I say, "I don't want to shop. I want to see a movie." So, oh, please say no. Nope. And it's okay for me to say no, uh, recognizing that I'm inviting that person into a companionship interaction. Now, the next level up is a friendship, and a friendship is the reverse. In a friendship, two people associate for the purpose of mutual support and enjoyment of each other. When I have a friend, the person is important, the activity is secondary. So if I, in other words, if I'm calling somebody up and I want to go bowling, does anyone bowl anymore? I don't think so. Um, Or if I want to go and play tennis, or backgammon or cars and I call people up and they don't want to do it, too bad. I'll find somebody else. That's companionship. But if I want friendship, I'm going to call you up and say, I want to spend time with you. Then we decide on the context or the shared activity in which we're going to do that. But then, if, if I want to see a movie and that person doesn't, we begin changing the activities because our primary goal is to spend time with each other. Now, when two people relate, they relate on a whole bunch of different levels. Now, let's just take these two to show you how we get into trouble. A man comes home from work. He is married. His wife also works, and they come home in the evening. Now, the man is really dying that night to go out and see a movie. His wife is really lonely and wants to spend some good, intimate time with the husband. The husband is companion-oriented that night, wants somebody to share a movie with him. The wife is friendship-oriented that evening. She wants this person to be a friend and spend time with him. So they come together, of course, coming from dysfunctional families. They don't recognize there are different relationship levels. They have never talked about this. So the husband invites the wife into a companionship role and says, let's go see the new movie that's out. And the wife says... I really don't want to go see the movie. Let's just cuddle up in front of the TV and, and spend some time or listen to music and talk. He says, well, I'll tell you what. You stay home and watch TV. I'm going to call Jack and we're going to go out and see the movie. What happens? The wife gets violently upset. What the hell? You don't care about me. You don't love me. You don't... An argument ensues. And the husband said, women are nuts. What difference does it make that I want to see a movie? What's the problem here? They are operating at different levels of relationship expectation. okay? So what do we have? Superficial involvement, companionship, the activity comes first, the person comes second. Then we have friendship, the person comes first, the activity comes second. The next level we have is a loving relationship. Romantic love This is a friendship In which there is shared passion Sensuality and sexuality The express purpose of a romantic relationship Is to have a sexy friend That's what it's all about If you are having sex with someone who is not your friend You are into a superficial relationship That doesn't even deserve, you know, that sexuality without a basis of friendship is not romantic love. You may think it is, but it isn't. It is a shared activity, sometimes at a superficial level. Okay? Now, are you getting into this way of thinking a little bit? Okay? Now, there's one other type of relationship. Oftentimes, you meet somebody superficially, you like them. You decide... Now, I'm, I'm trying to share with you the sequence of how to build a relationship. Okay? So listen to me. These steps kind of go. You meet somebody superficially. And you observe them with no commitment. Got the picture? And you engage your brain and you think. You engage your gut and you react and you say, Do I like this person? Do I feel good about them? As I observe them, do they seem to be sane? Okay? That is not an awful thing to do, to evaluate the sanity of a prospective partner. Okay? Now, once you decide this person is probably good for me, and I feel good about them, then the next step is you invite the person into a companionship with you. Let us go and do something together. Why? Companions are interchangeable. There is limited commitment or involvement there. Is this making sense? So you are still safe. Okay? Let's, now, uh, and typically you should structure the more involving or distracting the activity the safer you are. It's the safest first take typically is a movie. Some, or a dinner party, something with other people where there's not an opportunity for real tense, intense alone time. Because now you can be kind of safe, serve the other person, see how they interact with others. so if the person you're going out with wants to punch out the ticket agent at the movie
1: <laughs> because
0: they expected him to pay for the ticket, you know, and that might give you a warning sign. You know what I mean? You might be able to say, perhaps this isn't a good idea. Uh,
1: Okay?
0: Then after the companionship goes and you observe, you know, again, if you begin to notice in your head that this person's a little bit flaky, or if you begin to feel bad about what's going on, you bow out. Then the next level is you start treating them as a friend you start spending more and more unstructured time with them so you can get to know them as a person and you let the relationship evolve so that you become a closer and closer friend of theirs. Then, as the friendship develops, out of that friendship emerges sexuality. What? (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: hey Gorsky, You got that Bass work.
1: <laughs>
0: you know I mean You meet somebody And all of a sudden Your gonads go off And it gives you the message You know what I mean
1: You see now,
0: I hate to suggest that many of us think with that part of our body in the early phases of a relationship.
1: You know, and, uh,
0: but it happens quite a bit. Sexuality, if it is the primary foundation of a relationship, will 90% of the time lead you into a dysfunctional relationship. Okay. It really will. The relationships that survive are the relationships where sexuality emerges out of a foundation of friendship and the relationship has moved through stages from superficial involvement to companionship to friendship to romantic love. Now, once you're in love with somebody, it's not over.
1: Don't you die and go to heaven at that point? What do you mean?
0: That's that's what my whole life is about, isn't it? To be in love. And when that love happens, I'm going to be wonderful. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fixed. My life's going to... Isn't that what it's... No. Because then romantic love emerges into a functional association with the other person. As you begin to share your life with that other person, you make commitments in the real world to meet each other's physical and emotional and social needs. It means that if that person gets cancer, you don't walk out on them. It means you participate together to pay the bills, to pay the rent, to keep your house going. If you have children, you're making real-world commitments, not taken lightly. And typically, in the old days, this was called marriage. Okay? But now in the 1980s, there is a pre-marriage for most people, and we don't have a good word for it. It's called living together or cohabiting, or I don't—I never had a good word for that when I was involved in it. I, I do need one though, something that will legitimize that for what it is, because um, functional association now is two stages. Typically, people live together, then they get married. Okay. Now, when you look at it this way. You begin to recognize that normal people do not get married two weeks after they meet their their partner. That's not normal. That's not healthy. Normal people may meet somebody and go to bed with them on the first date, but they realize half of that thrill is like putting one bullet in the chamber of a a six-shot gun, spinning the chamber and holding it up to your head. It may be that you develop some other things in common other than sexuality, or it may be you walk away with herpes or (laughs) AIDS. You don't know. You don't know. You haven't got the foggiest idea. It's high-risk sex. It's high-risk relationship. But of course, when my gonads do the talking, it's got to be right, right? We use our sexuality to shut off our brain and to shut off our emotions, okay? Now, with this in mind, let's take a look at what happens in addictive relationships. As the addictive relationship moves from superficial involvement into companionship, into friendship, into romantic love, into functional association, you know, in about 22 minutes after you meet this person... (laughs) understand that there is an ACA who wrote a book called The First Five Minutes, and he describes all of those
1: steps.
0: (laughs) What happens? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide the addictive relationship into seven characteristics, just so we can think about them. In reality, you know, there are two types of people in the world. Do you know that? The first type of people divides people into types. The other type of person doesn't. (laughs) Now, I'm the first type of person. I divide people into types, so please bear with me. These things are artificial, but it helps us to think about the issue. There are seven major ways, seven major ways in which addictive relationships work that are essentially different from healthy relationships. Seven major ways that dysfunctional relationships operate that are different from functional relationships. And we're going to talk about these. The first area, I call it magical or unrealistic expectation. Before you ever meet your
1: partner. <laughs> Before
0: you ever meet your partner. We know what this relationship's going to be. Okay? I believe an intimate relationship will make me and my life better without the need to think better or act better.
1: Am I right? right?
0: Think about this I know that by the mere fact Of involvement with this person Every aspect of me and my life Will improve And I won't have to do Dingleberries about it It will just automatically Get better I will be fixed It will fix me Or make me something I'm not With no or very little effort that's magical thinking, and we're going to talk about the antidote to that. Now, the next thing is instant gratification, okay? The only relationships that will serve as addictive relationships are those that are based on a foundation of intense sexuality. Bells go off, whistles go off. You know, I mean, you just can't wait. You know this person in you is just tremendous animal magnetism. Now, if you are single and you are new, newly recovering in the ACA program, I make this recommendation to you. When you go to a party or a meeting or a social event and you are looking for a prospective partner, and you look across the room and this person leaps out to you with this huge animal magnetism, walk the other way. (laughs) I don't know how this works. I really don't. But I know that when I was single and dating in my early 20s, I have dated four consecutive women who attempted suicide in one year.
1: <laughs> Try it! I
0: mean, I would lay money that you could not do that if, you, if there were a million dollars on the line. You know how hard it is to find someone who's suicidal and fall in love with them? That's not four in a row! <laughs> but it was easy I was at a party and boom, there
1: she was <laughs> well there
0: we went and there we were and it just unfolded you may be cautious about that because this ability for instant gratification there is immediate intent and in continual satisfaction and I expect this as the basic requirement of my partner And let me underline this. I expect my partner to be able to provide me with immediate, instant, and continuous gratification anytime I want it. Isn't that what love's all about,
1: guys? Isn't it? I love you. Blow my mind. On demand. What does
0: that? What, what is capable of blowing our mind on demand? Anybody here recovering from a chemical dependency?
1: <laughs>
0: Remember that lady cocaine, that lady heroin, that or if you're a, if you're a lady, you know the man cocaine, the man heroin. Those things blow our minds on demand. What we are doing is looking for a living, breathing drug with the appropriate sex
1: organs.
0: (laughs) That's really what we're looking for because we've been taught this. If you come from an alcoholic family, what is the only positive love relationship you have ever witnessed? The love relationship between your addicted parents and their drug. That is the only successful love relationship you've witnessed. Think about that. Think about that. And as a result, even if you have chosen not to use the drug, you have witnessed that effect. You witnessed that all-consuming passion and says, this is the only thing that won't abandon me. I've got to get that feeling somewhere. And so I'm going to select people that can provide it. And that feeling requires an adrenaline surge along with sexual attraction. Boom, 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 boom. boom when your heart starts beating what feeling is that typically associated with? Fear. One woman came in and said I don't understand it I always find men who beat me. She says, I don't understand I said well where do you go to meet men? She says oh, I go to the biker bar.
1: I said oh well
0: um, what do you do there? She says well I put on a black leather mini skirt and I put bumper stickers on my car that say, Have you been laid lately? I pull up in front of the place and I go in and I find somebody who I'm really attracted to. You know, and these bikers are really misunderstood. Everyone thinks they're really bad people, but these are tender, sensitive, caring people that are just misunderstood by, by society. And then I get involved with one of these people, and lo and behold, he beats me. I says, Did you ever think there might be a selection error going on here? And she looks at me and says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, couldn't you try to meet men somewhere else? She looks at me and gets a disgusted look on her face and says, where do you want me to go to meet men? To church
1: or something? I said,
0: well, you
1: know.
0: But you see how this works? And then when we began exploring this in therapy together, what she began to discover is she was scared going into this bar. And part of the role modeling of the love, rela- remember, we're imitating the relationship of the love between our addicted parents and their chemical. And what do we always feel when we witness that love relationship? Fear. So the addictive relationship, this foundation of fear, is confused with passion. It's confused with excitement. And the scary components of this are very important. Now, we move on. The next characteristic is dishonesty. Dishonesty. The belief that the relationship will be destroyed if I know everything there is to know about my partner and they know everything there is to know about me. I can't be honest. He'd leave me. she would leave me. We wouldn't work out together. The whole thing will crumble into dust. Does this make sense? So now come the no talk rules. I can't talk about certain aspects of my inner experience. I can't give you feedback about certain aspects of your experiences or what you're doing, how you impact upon me. There are no talk rules. And these no talk rules are necessary to keep the fear alive, to keep the excitement alive, to keep the sexual passion going. But now, because I can't be honest, I gotta work at this sneakily, okay? Now comes the attempts at compulsive over control. Because I have to keep the climate just right so the relationship will blow my mind on demand. Okay? I gotta be perfect. The relationship's gotta work. I gotta make this, this relationship work. So what we look at is the belief that without intense continue, without intense continuous conscious effort, the relationship will self-destruct. You ever notice this? I have to work at it all the time. And there even comes this belief that if I stop thinking about it, the relationship, even for a moment, it will crumble into dust. So we become obsessed with the relationship. We begin thinking about the relationship when it would be more appropriate to think about other things. Okay? We become compelled with it. The so compulsion becomes overwhelming. You know, God mentioned yesterday that he would he would meet a lady and then they'd kind of sink out of sight for three weeks. Everything else in the life becomes secondary. Nothing else counts. And then you kind of resurface. A little while later and somebody says, hey, who's that? You know, that person's maybe not very good for you. And you ah, emerge again, okay? Because now... You have totally rearranged your value system around this person. Alright? So you're trying to compulsively over-control the situation. This tends to lead just to a tad of trust problem. (laughs) Because remember, you've got two people trying to do this to each other. I can't let you know who I am or what I want or what I need because you'll leave me. The other person says, I can't let you know who I am, what I want or what I need, or you'll leave me, so I'm going to trick you into giving me what I want without telling you about it.
1: <laughs>
0: That's the essence of compulsive overcontrol. Okay, And you expect the other person to read your mind and if they don't recognize that you want something and then they don't give it to you, you get all upset and you, you manipulate and so on, this leads to a lack of trust. There is persistently alternating doubts about myself and my partner. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes I think, I, there must be something wrong with me because this relationship is failing. I must be inherently defective and I feel a sense of shame. Or I must be doing something wrong and I feel a sense of guilt. And then I say, look, not me, it's them. And I go into blaming and scapegoating. There must be something inherently wrong with them. You ever find yourself complaining about your partner? What a bitch or bastard I am married to or involved with. Do they really, and you go on with a litany of everything they have done wrong, except you've made a mistake and you're talking to somebody with some maturity in the program, and after you go on for 20, 30, 45 minutes, hour and a half, you know, it depends on how bad a day it's been, they look at you and say, gee, What is it about you that attracts somebody like that? (laughs) And what is it about you that you want to stay involved with somebody like that? So where does it lead right back to? It always comes back home. If you are hooked up with the world's first-class loser, what's wrong with you that you are? So you see the alternating doubt, Then I get back into the shame and guilt. I must be defective or doing something wrong until I wow and I say, no, it's not my fault, it's their fault, you blame them, but eventually you got to come back to the issue. Who made the decision to get into that relationship and who's making the decision on a day-to-day basis to stay in that relationship? You are. And then the fundamental question becomes, why? You see, you can't ask that because you can't be honest. you got no talk rule. And besides that, the sex is so good.
1: <laughs>
0: wow, is it good. Boom, we merge into one, and it's a spiritual experience. The lights blow out, and we melt into the universe, and our atoms blow, and then we come back. Big bang theory to the max, you know what I mean? <laughs> And other than that, I don't expect a damn thing from you. <laughs> just do that whenever I want you to, okay?
1: Right?
0: Now, because we've got to protect this experience, just like the alcoholic protects his drug, was, what does an alcoholic do when they really get to need their booze? Do so they leave it out so everyone can help themselves?
1: <laughs> coke
0: addicts, they throw all the coke on the table and say, Hey, guys, hey, gals, help yourself. <laughs> Or do they hide their supply? They typically hide their supply. In addictive relationships, you do the same thing. You isolate. Nobody's going to get near my partner. We're going to hole up all alone, and we're going to just suck ourselves off away from everybody else, and no one is going to share in this marvelous experience we're having. It's going to be us alone, because nobody can understand the deep religious nature of this experience. (laughs) So you become isolated. There is a need to hide the true nature of the relationship from other people. The relationship becomes a closed system. Now you can tell if you're an ACA when your relationship is getting a little bit on the dysfunctional side because you will feel this strange feeling in the pit of your stomach when you consider bringing your partner around your ACA friend. And you will have a real lot of trouble inviting your ACA friends to share social activities and so on with you and your partner, of course, because you don't want your privacy violated. Or is it because maybe there's some sinking stuff going on in the relationship and you don't want it exposed, you don't want to look at it. Finally, this produces a repeating cycle of pain. There's a cycle of desperate action. I'll do anything to make this relationship work followed by short term intense pleasure my mind blows out of my circuit and it is so wonderful it is so good its it was worth the beating it was worth the argument it was worth the fight it was worth the six weeks of ripping my guts to shreds to get this night of pleasure and then it's What happens? It blows up again. More pain, and now I become disillusioned. Maybe this is never going to work, and I blame my partner. Then I start blaming myself and say, It is my fault. I'll try again. And I go through the cycle of desperate action again until finally, typically what happens is I shit-can that relationship. Say, That's over. No more. And then I go out and look for another person that will blow my mind at a party. And I start the same process all over again. Huh. There's nothing to this at all. I can, I can see I've got to go back to the drawing board with this. This really doesn't work. Now, what I would like to do is I'd like to share with you I'd like to share with you how a healthy relationship is different. Are you curious? Okay. Now remember, the first thing we talked about is relationships progressing through levels of development. Relationship as a developmental process of growing in each other's presence. Okay. Now let, I just want to reemphasize this because you know I've done a lot of counseling with recovering people, you know, people divorced and single and this kind of stuff, and you know, one guy came to me and says, you know, I can't understand it, uh, women. Will go out with me for the first date, no problem, but they don't ever say yes the second time around. I said, well, tell me, why do you think it's I don't have this idea. I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, on the first date, I pick them up, and we go out and we have dinner. Nice quiet restaurant all by ourselves. We can talk and get to know each other. And I said, well, how do you handle the date? He said, well, first thing I feel, they have to be rigorously honest. So I pick them up, I take me to the restaurant, I sit down, and we order. And then I say, um, you're aware that I'm a recovering alcoholic, aren't you? let me tell you my story and then they whip out their whole AA story including all the incidents of past female abuse and all of this and then they look at the person and say okay so now you know I'm an alcoholic you don't still want to go out with me do you? and the person says well you know that's okay I understand that um, it's okay that you're an alcoholic okay I'm also a heroin addict. Uh, You know, I I got a bit to do. Now are you willing to go out with me?
1: Well, and they just keep,
0: you know, but of course this is just sharing. (laughs) Now, a rule if you want to have a healthy intimate relationship. Your ACA story does not get shared till at least date 10. Seriously! Seriously, you know what a healthy person's going to do if they take somebody out on the first date and they start telling this horrendously dysfunctional story of their life?
1: <laughs>
0: now what an ACA would do is they'd marry them. <laughs> person does it says this max of problems I'm going to distance this person and look for somebody who's able to relate in a sane context appropriate way for a first date but our need for instant gratification doesn't let us do this go out on a first date and just do something together have a cup of coffee talk a little bit go home don't sleep with him or her the first date my God this is heresy.
1: <laughs>
0: if you're in love, you're in love. All right? All right? Now, that's the first thing. The first difference is the addictive relationship is grown into intense interpersonal risking and sharing instantaneously. And that's the demand. The healthy relationship grows slowly and gradually where people test each other to determine if future sharing is safe. This is healthy there are sickies out there I'm sure there are none in this room (laughs)
1: because we
0: all got well but out in the world there are sickies who's going to protect you from the sickies you are and how do you do that by taking it slow and systematically and having a game plan. And if you come from a dysfunctional family, when you start dating somebody, at every step of the process, you'd better run back to your sponsor and run back to your meeting and say, this is what happened, tell me what you think. So this smack of health or is this smack of dysfunction? okay? Because you need a reality test. Because I'll tell you, when you conduct a relationship this way, it will feel abnormal. Because for you, normal is a big deal. And when you slow down and say, I'm going to take six to ten weeks to decide if I really want to get involved with this person. Six to ten
1: weeks. (laughs) That's almost three months. (laughs) I can't wait. Well,
0: how long has it been since you've had sex? A year and a half. Well, I can't <laughs> wait right? But now this is healthy self-protection. Now this way, now let me tell you how this frees you. You don't have to only pick perfect people to go out on a first date with.
1: Ah.
0: So you're now selecting And anyone where the gong goes off You're walking away from them And who are you selecting? Let me give you a hint Boring people
1: <laughs>
0: Boring people Okay? You select somebody where the gong don't go off And I encourage all of you To experiment with dating boring people Okay. Now, they don't have to be real boring, but someone with a gong's don't go off. Now, the next thing, all right. so help um, addictive relationships happen instantaneously. The sex organs do the thinking and the sex organs do the talking. There is no developmental process of getting to know each other. There is no self-protective mechanism built into the relationship. Important concept, build a self-protective mechanism into your relationship. Very vital, especially in early ACA recovery. Make sure you can protect yourself. As a matter of fact, I recommend this. I recommend you set up a very firm, I do not go to bed on the first date policy. Now, how many dates you, you you have to consciously, is it one, two, three, whatever, but make a firm commitment to that. Because the most painful thing that people find is that a lot of people view sexuality as a casual affair. And you get gone on, on the first date and you go to bed with somebody who never call you back. Now this used to be the exclusive province of men you know, abusing women this day. It's no longer the exclusive province of men. Men, how many of you have had that happen to you with a lady? Okay. See now women are engaging in that particular sport also now. Um <laughs> And the way you find out is if you go out with them and you say, no, I'm not going to go to bed with you tonight, they'll just never call you again. Because they wouldn't call you again even if you had. So you can screen that out. You have to build self-protective mechanisms in and a no-sex rule for somewhere between one to three days. Okay? And now the other rule is never have sex with your partner if you don't genuinely in your gut feel good about them. Never go to bed with somebody out of guilt. Never go to bed with somebody out of obligation. Those two feelings are the hallmark of addictive relationships. And above all, never go to bed with anyone because you believe it will change them.
1: <laughs> okay? Now, secondly,
0: dysfunctional relationships are based on magical or unrealistic expectations. I expect that this relationship will somehow magically change me. Healthy relationships are based on rational and realistic expectations. Rational and realistic. What does it mean? All right, I'm unemployed and I have get into a healthy relationship. What is different? I'm an unemployed person with a healthy relationship. That's it. It means I have a good intimate relationship. I have a good lover, friend, companion who I can talk to about the stress of being unemployed. Does it give me a job? No. Let's say I'm an emotionally unhappy person who has a healthy intimate relationship. What's going to be different? I'm going to be an emotionally unhappy person with a good intimate relationship. I'm a dumb person and I'm single and I meet a person and I have a healthy intimate relationship. I'm going to be a dumb person with a good relationship nothing else is going to change except for the fact of the relationship. This includes, ladies and gentlemen, getting married. The only thing marriage will do is make your life worse for a little while because of the... And believe me, this is true. If you're living together with somebody for a while, then you get married and it destroyed a good love relationship. The reason is, when you get married, you unconsciously start acting out the, the wife-husband role expectations you learned in your family. And it's an unconscious process and requires effort to overcome this. Okay? But you have rational, realistic expectations. Having a good relationship will give me a good relationship. It won't fix anything else. So here's another fundamental principle. First self, then the possibility of healthy intimacy. You first develop a healthy self, then you have the possibility of healthy intimacy. You only have the possibility to attract to you in an intimate relationship someone who approximates the level of emotional health that you possess yourself. Now, this makes it very difficult. One person came to me and said, Gee, I don't attract anything except ugly, mean women.
1: (laughs) You know, and a
0: woman came to me once I don't attract anything except mean, rotten men. So I said to the guy, what is it about you that attracts ugly, mean women? What do you do that attracts that? Well, as a lady, what, you know, well, I mean, this was a very personal therapy. I went into therapy. And here I am, I was 245 pounds. I was working 80 hours a week. I did nothing but work and collapse and sleep. I was psychotically obsessed with my work, I could not communicate, I would uh, monopolize conversations, I had underlying anger and hostility, and um, I thought once I got my career together, I would automatically find a love relationship and it didn't materialize, so I went into therapy, you know, to find out why. And the therapist says, well, Terry, what kind of woman do you want? And I said, well, I want a young, attractive woman, you know, uh, nice personality. Um, Laughter athletic, you know, she's got to be athletic, she's got to have a lot of interest, a lot of friends, good social activities, you know, sports-minded, you know, good personality, and, you know, she's got to have all of these things going for her. And he listened to me, and he nodded a little bit, and then he looked at me, and he says, Terry, no, I'm going to ask you a question. I said, yes. He says, you may not like it. I said, well, okay, great. He says, are you sure you can handle it? I says, yeah, I'm sure. He says, okay, sir. What would a woman like that (laughs) want with somebody like
1: you?
0: (laughs) I fired that son of a bitch.
1: There's plenty of
0: therapists in this world. I don't need that suffering messing up my life. here's the principle okay now here's the other principle you see people in addictive relationships you can always tell the people looking for an addictive relationship what are you doing I'm looking for someone to love I want someone to love. If only I could find someone to love. I'm looking for someone to love. I'm looking for love and all the wrong things. You know, I play these songs over and over. The addictive, you know, rehearsal, good music, you know what I mean? I can't smile without him. You know, I can that type of type of stuff we go through. And because I'm looking for this relationship. What do healthy people do when they're single? Healthy people are not psychotically obsessed with finding a partner. They're psychotically. they're not upset they're not with finding somebody to love. They become obsessed. Are you ready for this and underline this in your mind. They become obsessed with becoming a person who's worthy to be loved. Think on that one. I don't have to compulsively hunt out somebody to love me. If I put the same energy into becoming a person who's worthy of being loved, somebody will find me. How many of you have looked around? How many of you are single at this point? Just a couple of you.
1: <laughs> we
0: do have a knack for making marriages work, don't we?
1: Say? Okay, we really... All right.
0: Here's the interest, Here's the interesting thing, thing. about this, you know, um, when
1: you
0: when you're looking, when you spend all your time looking for somebody else, you don't have any time to work on yourself. Okay. Now this is, this was really driven home to me a number of years ago in therapy when somebody says, "Well, tell me about your life." I said, well, "I can't find a woman worthy of love." And I, what do you do? I'm looking all the time. How many women are you? I'm dating seven, eight women at a time. So, how would you describe the quality of the women you're dating? I said, Ugh you
1: know,
0: and you used the derogatory language all the Sylvanist kid uses to describe women. I said, oh, this person said, uh, hmm, now that's really interesting. He <laughs> said, that's another reason why a high-quality woman would really be interested in you, isn't it?
1: <laughs> isn't a
0: high-quality woman that wants a committed, caring relationship going to be interested in a guy who taps around like you do? and he said well what do you suggest he says why don't you stop why don't you stop getting involved with all these women and open up in your, time, in your life so something can happen. I said, you've got to be kidding okay? but this is how it starts you have to work on yourself you have to open yourself up the chain how many of you have looked out on the dating scene and said there's no quality people out there for me to get involved with how many have said that
1: <sighs>
0: now as your hands are up, look around the room who are you saying that about? Who are you saying that about? I've done workshops on intimacy, and I've taken men in one room, women in the other room, and i said, what's your biggest problem? The men say there are no quality women, and the women say there are no quality men. And I say, do you consider yourself quality men capable of intimacy? And they say, right on, brother.
1: <laughs>
0: do you women consider yourself quality women capable of intimacy? They say, right on, but you, you, know, you wouldn't understand that because you're a man, so we bring them together. They both look at each other and say,
1: yes.
0: <laughs> Process is called delusional thinking. See? Because we are basing our idea of what is you know, what do you mean I have a capacity for intimacy? I am capable of having mind-blowing sex with the right person, right? That's what intimacy is about. All right. Now, that's the next step, okay? The person interested in an addictive relationship looks for instant gratification. The primary value of the relationship is the ability to blow each other's minds on demand. The person going for a healthy relationship isn't looking for that. They're looking for long-term contentment, long term security, long-term peace of mind. A mentally healthy person is someone who plans for their best interest for the long term of their life.
1: What? And that goes against the program, doesn't it? Doesn't one day at a time mean don't plan? <laughs> you know what I mean? You no, know,
0: one day at a time means you pay attention to what you're doing now, but you still look into the future. You don't pick a partner solely based on how they make you feel today. Okay? Now, third thing. The um, dysfunctional person, the person going after an addictive relationship, is dishonest. There are things going on in their heart and in their mind and in their feeling that they don't share with their partner because the belief is if they know about that, if I share that, they will not love me anymore. Based upon the belief, I'm inherently and irrevocably unlovable. Now, the healthy relationship is based upon rigorous honesty. Healthy people, before they make significant commitments interpersonally, want to share with their partner the nature of who they are and know that they are totally accepted unconditionally for what they are. Knowing that they will not need to keep secrets. Okay? So they make a commitment to be fully conscious of their partner. And as a matter of fact, they get offended when they find their partner is keeping secrets from them. And that can become grounds for relationship termination. Healthy relationships don't tolerate secrets. Now, this doesn't mean you pluck out a litany of every single detailed thing you've done in the past. No. It's like the fourth step or the fifth step. You don't share in a fifth step every single concrete incident where you've done something wrong. You share the nature of your wrong. What's the nature of past problems I've had? What is the type of person I've been and the type of person I'm becoming? Your partner needs to know that. And ladies and gentlemen, if they can't handle it, there's no future there anyway.
1: You don't do it on the first (laughs) page. Or the second or the third. Okay?
0: Next is compulsive over-control. You're hooked up with somebody who I've got to change. As soon as I change just a little bit, I'll be happy. Okay? As a result, I'm hooked in this thing I can't be comfortable, I can't be free-flowing I can't be natural I've got to fake it I've got to force this person into a mold I've got to change them I've got to hide myself I'm working at this sucker all the time A lot of energy's going into this What about a healthy person? You know, a healthy person isn't very interested in a relationship That's going to take a lot of work Are you aware of that? A a person from a dysfunctional family believes the norm in a relationship is to constantly struggle and occasionally have a few moments of good feelings that then degrade back into a struggle. That's the norm. And they expect that, and they look for it. You know what a healthy person expects in a relationship? That the norm of the relationship is voluntary, free-flowing cooperation. But it's comfortable, it's support. it feels good, it feels nice. I don't want to hide, work, struggle, walk on eggshells, control, manipulate. And yes, every once in a while we experience abnormal periods of problems. But we know we will solve those problems together through cooperation and that we will then go back to the norm which is comfort. Addictive relationships, pain and struggle is the norm Brief periods of good times is the exception to the norm. In a healthy relationship, comfort and satisfaction in good times is the norm. Brief periods of struggle and conflict is the opposite of the norm. Okay? Now that's healthy, that's normal. Now what else? Uh, lack of trust. We talked about this. People do not, in addictive relationships, they don't trust each other. They never know what the other one's going to do. i got to trick them into being responsible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In a healthy relationship, There is rational trust. I want to explain this. Rational trust. I know a person who bought a cat. Okay? And they were really ticked at this cat. And I said, why? That damn animal walks all over everything. It climbed on bookshelves And over this And i have been beating that sucking cat To keep him off the furniture And to keep him off the drapes And I can't get that cat To stay off my furniture And I said well Why are you trying to do that? I had a dog that never did that
1: <laughs> Okay
0: Now what's the problem here? I the cat to violate its basic nature. For me. (laughs) For me. Let's not forget that. There's a reason and important for me. See? Now, people have natures too. Fundamental inherent natures. You're not going to get somebody to change their fundamental inherent nature. If somebody's nature doesn't fit yours, you're not going to change it. If you commit with somebody and you struggle to change their nature, it is not going to work. What is rational trust? Rational trust is the belief that the person will always act in accordance with their nature as a human being. They will always act eventually in accordance with their natural free-flowing preferences in life. In other words every human being will naturally pursue what they believe to be in their best interest to the best of their ability. That's what it's all about. And if you get hooked up with somebody and you expect them to act in non-accordance with their nature, it won't work. I was in a relationship with a woman I loved very much, and we had all kinds of things in common except for one. I was work-oriented, loved living in the city, and wanted to up my career, and I needed someone to support that. And she had come from out west, and all she wanted to do was move back to Arizona, live in a log cabin, work a 20- or 30-hour-a-week job, get enough money to pay the rent so she can listen to John Denver, John Denver music, sit on the front porch reading books with her husband there, and they can companionship together and go hiking in the woods. That was her fundamental nature. The work nature was my fundamental nature. What do you think happened to the relationship? It didn't work. And it's not because we didn't love and care about each other. It's just one of us would have had to violate our natures and it would not have worked. Not everybody can build a productive relationship together. Healthy people know this and accept it and they go through a rational process. Remember this building process of the relationship? They go through a screening process. And they say, hey, will this person sit with me as I am or will I have to change? And if I have to change too much, I'm not interested. That's what a healthy person says. So I'm not talking about normal processes of growth, but I'm not willing to change fundamentally who I am as a human being to accommodate anybody else. And if it's not a joy to be around me the way I am, given, of course, I'm not totally pathological, I'm not interested in that relationship. Now, here again is where a fourth step comes in. So if you're elevated, don't go all the way up most days.
1: Okay? You're going
0: to find people who are interested in involvement with you that really don't want to get to the top four in life. Okay? Is this making any kind of sense to you? So in other words, you're going to attract people at your level of development. Now, I want to share with you another normal thing. One monogamous lifelong relationship is no longer normal in this culture. It was normal when the average life expectancy was 36, (laughs) and a man would be married three times between age 14 and age 36 because he lost three wives in childbirth. Then it's normal. Now it's not. The norm is serial monogamy relationships where we grow together and then outgrow each other, then grow together again and outgrow each other. And it is normal for a person to go through three to five primary, substantially enduring relationships in their lifetime but outgrow each other. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. If it's done responsibly and you recognize that you will attract somebody at your level of growth and you may grow in a way that they're not willing or able to, and then you recognize. Now, this brings another principle. Healthy people know how to responsibly get out of relationships. If you have never responsibly gotten out of a relationship, I suggest before you ever get serious about anybody, you give yourself a homework assignment to get in and out of three relationships in quick succession. Doesn't <laughs> that sound nasty? <laughs> now, on relationship's not quite a weekend guy, you know.
1: But, <laughs> you know the type
0: here, you always know, have a meaningful relationship tonight, you know. <laughs> if it is, but get into a relationship, enjoy the other person's company, and then end it. Oh, my God, I can't do that. See? But until you know you can get out of a relationship, you will never be free to choose to stay in one. Remember this. Until I know I can get out of a relationship when I choose to, I am capable of getting out, I will never be free to choose to stay in. I will be trapped. And when I have no choice, I can never be free to love, because love is a free expression of choice. I must love you in a free, natural, uncoerced way. And if I am coercing myself because I know there's no way out ever, and I start dreaming of you dying just so I can get out, that's not—it's not too good. You can never love under those agreements. But that's rational trust. The next is social isolation. It's if the relationships are isolated. It's you and I against the world. You that's how this music really reinforces the healthy aspects of relationships. Uh, the healthy relationship is socially integrated. When a healthy person gets involved in a relationship, they keep their old friends. And they still see them.
1: <laughs> okay?
0: The other partner keeps their old friends. Suggestion. The partner has no friends. Think about that.
1: <laughs>
0: Think about that, okay? Wave that a little bit and you're, you're getting to no process. So maybe there's a reason for that.
1: Okay?
0: It's okay to get out of a relationship that's not going to work before you commit in. And don't commit too fast. That's normal not to commit too fast. Okay? So now, you, the, both partners have friends and then they come together as a couple and they develop friends as a couple. There's my social life, your social life, and our social life. See, and this is the other thing I'd really like to point out is that there is really in relationship I, I went to my brother's wedding and it was a Catholic wedding anyone here Catholic how many of you are recovering at this moment from that
1: uh, it's
0: it's really an interesting thing many of you have probably seen the Catholic wedding service where you sit there and if you're a healthy person watching this you die inside because they walk up to the statue of the Virgin Mary and there are two candles burning and a third unlighted candle one platform up and they pick up the candle which symbolizes me and the partner you know the, the wife or the husband picks up the other candle symbolizing them and then the two people merge their flames together to light the third candle. Then they bring their own flames back, and what do they do? They blow out their own bloody candle.
1: (laughs) That eat healthy.
0: Normally, yes. Healthy, no. Okay? Healthy people don't lose themselves in their relationships. They have a sense of this is me. I am me. You are you. We are us. They also recognize when you get into a relationship, there are three categories of problems. There is my problems that I must solve on my own, hopefully with support and understanding from you, but you can't fix them. i got to fix them. And I know you have problems that are yours that you've got to fix, hopefully with my help and understanding. And then we recognize there are our problems, those issues we must work on together. And at any given time in any given relationship, all three categories of problems are present. There is no... Healthy people recognize there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. They have realistic expectations. And somebody says, well, I got you? What is has the intimacy? What is a healthy relationship? In a healthy relationship, two people trade in one set of problems for a better set of problems. It is the same thing with personal recovery in the ACA program. You will never be problem free. You know, life is a series of problems, beginning with birth and ending with death. Unless you believe in an afterlife. So somebody once asked me, Terry, do you believe there are good and evil spirits in the, in the other life? And I said, yeah, I think I do. He do you believe there are good and evil people here on earth? I said, yeah, I think I do. And he says, then when you die, it's really not going to be much different, is it? <laughs> oh,
1: shit! <laughs>
0: Maybe it doesn't end there. But now somebody else says, well, my problems do end at death because I don't believe in an afterlife. And somebody else in the group signs up and says, well, have you ever tried to decompose? That's a problem. <laughs> There are problems, sequences of problems. Healthy people trade in one set of problems for a better set of problems, Then they trade in that set of problems for a better set of problems. It's called progressive developmental growth. That's what relationships are about. You will always be struggling with problems. But in a healthy relationship, there's social integration. You can go outside the relationship, outside of the family to get help, courage, and support. There are not secrets that need to be hidden from the whole world. Finally, and this is very important, the addictive relationship has itself in a cycle of repeating pain. And the cycle of repeating pain goes like this. Intense pleasure, Intense pain, disillusionment, blaming my partner for the whole thing, desperate action to make it work again, and the cycle starts all over again. Intense pleasure, intense pain, disillusionment, blaming myself and my partner. Typically I blame my partner, then I blame myself, then desperate action I start all over again. Every once in a while we take a vacation from that and have a good time for a few minutes. (laughs) But we don't do that too often because we're hard workers. We have to make this relationship grow. We need growth experiences, you know what I mean? How do healthy relationships work? It goes like this. There is a repeating cycle of deepening contentment. There is satisfaction and contentment with the partner. A problem develops, which creates pain, which results in... Are you ready for this? This is radical. (laughs) Problem-solving behaviors. We rationally look at the problem and we realize we are not enemies. We are in this together and we put our mutual brain power together and we solve the problem. And are you ready for this next step? Resolution. We work at it till it is solved. Then our intimacy is heightened and we go back to our normal state of being content and satisfied with one another. Doesn't that sound weird?
1: <laughs>
0: okay? That's what healthy intimacy is about. I want, to give, ooh, I want to give you just a couple of steps for how to get there, just to summarize. It's going to take about two minutes. First of all, if you are interested in developing healthy intimacy, remember, first the self, then a possibility. First I become healthy, then I have the possibility of healthy intimacy. If your relationship sucks, so do you. And I hate to say it that way. I hate to say it that way, but we have to take a look at something here. If our relationships are really problematic, you know what we are doing? We are externalizing our beliefs about what relationships should be. And I we straighten those expectancies out. You see, relationships are a mirror of our inner being. This is what we don't realize. It's a mirror of our inner being. So the first recommendation may establish and maintain a program of personal growth and recovery. First need, then a possibility. And in your early recovery, there's nothing wrong with clearing off of relationships until you get your shit together. There's nothing wrong with that. Secondly, establish realistic expectations of what an intimate relationship is and should be. Okay? Or well, establish what a relationship will and will not do for you, and this takes a lot of talking. You have to figure out what is rational and realistic to expect and what isn't. Third, select an appropriate partner. If you are in a relationship, evaluate your current partner's willingness to work with you to improve intimacy. This is the number one criteria for a partner. Number one, that you have things in common, and number two, that you are both interested in developing the same nature of a relationship. You are both looking for the same level of intimacy to develop. If one wants one level and the other one wants another level, you're not going to get it together. And a lot of problems in intimacy are very plain and simple selection errors because APAs and people from dysfunctional families don't believe they have the inherent right to select. Fourth, spend time with your partner. And in two ways, alone time and bounce that off with shared social time. You have to build experiences together. The next recommendation, share life experiences. The more, the better. The more history of life experiences you have, the deeper and more intense your relationship's going to be. And how do you do this? First of all, by doing things together and talking about what that meant to you and how you felt about it. This is what we did, this is the meaning it had, this is how I felt about it. And secondly, when you do things away from your partner, you come back and you share a breath of your experiences away. You talk to them about your activities of day-to-day living. The next thing you do, and this is really critical, learn how to balance risk-taking and comfort-seeking. Most people who have a tendency towards addictive relationships believe relationships are built upon risk-taking and they aren't. Healthy relationships are built upon comfort-seeking. Risk-taking occurs in small, measured doses. Comfort-seeking is the primary activity. Mutual pleasure and mutual satisfaction. So bounce that out. If you believe that a relationship has to be an endless series of painful personal growth experiences, you're never going to have much comfort and satisfaction in your
1: relationship.
0: And and screen screen your therapist for this. Ask your therapist what they believe in terms of growth experiences and relationships. If they say relationships are an endless series of painful growth experiences, remember, you're paying money to get that done to you. (laughs)
1: Okay?
0: Learn to talk about two things. And it starts off by talking about this in your ACOA group, what you believe you need in a relationship and what you want in a relationship. You've got to do reality testing with this. Because once you find a partner, here's what you need to do. You need to know, here's what I need in a relationship, here's what I want. I've got to put it into work. and I tell my partner about it. Here's what I need, here's what I want. Then I have to get interested and concerned about what my partner needs and wants. If any partner is unable to to know what they need and want and talk about it, the process of intimacy collapses. Because intimacy is achieving my basic needs so I'm comfortable and my basic wants so I'm happy. When your needs are met, you're comfortable. When your wants are met, you're happy. Next is feeling. You've got to know what you feel. You've got to be able to put it into words and tell your partner. Then you've got to give a damn about what they feel. You've got to care. You've got to be willing to listen. You've got to be concerned about it. This is easy stuff, isn't
1: it?
0: Okay? The third thing, you've got to learn to problem solve together. You've got to be willing to involve others in your relationship and ask for expert advice. If you are fearful of getting outside help, there's something wrong. In this day and age, changing social norms, changing morality, changing so on, changing expectations. Almost every couple periodically needs a therapist to sort things out. There is nothing wrong with that. It is, in fact, unhealthy to believe you can maintain an ongoing relationship without ever needing the help of an objective outsider to help you sort your head. So don't be afraid of that. Um, Finally, make your partner psychologically visible. Tell them how you see them. Tell you what you think about them. Tell them what they mean to you. Tell them how you feel about them. Without that, relationships wither and die. So what have I tried to do tonight? Well, hopefully what I've done first of all is talk to you about the levels of relationships and say, hey, know what level of relationship you want and first of all make sure your partner matches that. Secondly, I gave you a guide for evaluating how functional or dysfunctional your relationship is by giving you seven basic characteristics of addictive relationship and the seven basic counterpoints for that that occur in healthy relationships. And finally, we talked just a little bit about the means whereby you can, you can begin converting your addictive intimate skills into healthy intimate skills. And the thing I'd just like to share with you, Addictive intimacy takes a lot more skill and work than healthy intimacy. If you can engage in an addictive relationship, you can learn how to engage in a healthy one. And when you learn the basic principles, it'll be
1: easier and more satisfying than you'd ever believe. Thank you very much.